Take two. Take two. Welcome back to True Crime Trine, the podcast where the planets align and two friends this week talk about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit that we can fit in here. We are your hosts, Sarah and Meredith. And Hannah is not here this week, but we're going to continue the Capricorn spirit by being super organized. <laughs> yes. And drinking beer. <laughs> and drinking beer. Woo. Mm. And this is episode 53. Woo. For a little bit of housekeeping, we are going to welcome Louisiana. Noise. Oh, beignets and shrimp yeah. and grits and, I don't know, alligators, crabs. <laughs> All of it. Crab Louis. I don't know. All of the good stuff. Louisiana is our 39th state out of our collective 50, so we're still needing about 11 more to get that complete set, but we welcome you and thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you. All right. And yeah, that was all that I had for housekeeping. Today I'm going to be talking about the happy face killer. And Woo. it seems weird that like this isn't on our list, but here we go. All right. All right. Let's hear it. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on April 6, 1955 in British Columbia, Canada. 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 His parents, Leslie and Gladys, with Leslie being the father, but preferring to go by less. They both had five children together, not like five each, uh, <laughs> in their home in Chilliwack. Les was an alcoholic prone to violence and abusive to his children when he drank, which is kind of a common theme that we seem to, to follow when we think of making small murderers. Yes. Daddy issues. Yeah. So Jesperson was the middle child with two older siblings and two younger siblings. Their names were Bruce, Brad, Sharon, and Jill. However, they were all treated way more like children than Keith ever was. His father, Les, would charge him room and board while his siblings paid nothing. And I couldn't find at what age that actually happened when he started charging him room and board. But like, that just doesn't seem fair at all. You're four now. So go get a job. <laughs> go get a job. Child labor. Yeah. <laughs> Or just, like, start racking up a bill that, like, when he turns 18, he has to pay or something. I don't know. That's so sad. Here's your invoice. At some point, too, I had read that it was, like, $30 a month, which, that's obscene. Back then? For a yeah. child. Yeah. No, that's so sad. Maybe not for my kid. She's got more money in her wallet than <laughs> I do on any given just day. Get it saving. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Les would also punish Jesperson way more harshly. So while the other children would get spankings, Jesperson got his punishment by being beat with his father's leather belt. Jesus. Yeah. There were also records that he had apparently been shocked as a sort of punishment too, but I would take that with a grain of salt because his record was that it was 220 and Les would later go on to state that it was no more than 12 volts. Okay. And we did look this up, and it's more than 50 volts is sufficient to drive a potentially lethal current through your body. Yeah, that's like throwing your hair dryer in the bathtub level, 220. I don't, I don't think that oh. ever happened. <laughs> yeah, no. But he could have saved us all a lot of trouble from what it sounds like. Yeah. Even if it was less than 12 volts, electrocution on a child is absolutely disgusting and completely not okay. Definitely not. Rough upbringing, 
preferential treatment to his other siblings. He is the middle child, which it seems like the middle kids get it the worst too. It's like you're either completely forgotten about and you don't get anything nice or you get like this this sort of treatment, which is even worse. I, I don't know. It's just sad. There is a middle child syndrome. It's a real thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I may be a middle child. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't get shocked or beaten. Well, I mean, I, I'm a little bit older, so I we did get the, you know, wooden spoon treatment Ooh. when we were little, but that was okay during the 80s, so mm-hmm. not so much now. Things are different, yep. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, bad at home, but at school, Jesperson was actually a very large child. He was so much bigger than his classmates that he was taunted with names like Monster Man and Igor, referring mm. to... Dr. Frankenstein's assistant. Okay. He actually got into several fights because of this. Once holding a kid's head underwater at a public pool before the lifeguard was able to pull him away. And then another time he beat another boy in his class so badly that he lost consciousness. Jesus. Yeah, not great. And of course, these only egged on the name calling even further. And Jesperson soon realized that he felt some sort of exhilaration when he was inflicting pain on others and letting his sort of bad side take over. Yeah, not good. Mm -mm. So even as a child, we've got this Jekyll and Hyde thing going on. Okay. So as an outlet for his rage, he started showing signs that we now know are part of the McDonald's triad. Mainly, he expressed this in his cruelty to animals. Mm. He started killing mostly small animals at first as early as five years old when he would find gophers in their front yard. When the unhappy family moved to Selah, Washington in 1967, Jesperson, who was now 12, had easy pickings for his new victims. They lived in a trailer park at their new house, new location, and so things were tighter quarters and there were a lot more families and family pets to to pick off. But because of the close quarters too, and he's a large, large child, or I guess young man at this point, at, at 12 approaching his teens, he now is apparently man enough to go hunting. So out in solitude, where he's able to inflict pain on deer, rabbits, and coyotes, no one's going to notice, no one's going to see or hear it, and they were not going to look any differently at a deer carcass other than someone who just went hunting, right? So it was easier to kind of hide. This, unfortunately, is also one of the few times that his father, Les, actually approved of Jesperson's activities um, and once bragged to a neighbor about how tough his boy was, Mm. which is just sick. Yeah. Because he knew, I mean, not tough for the hunting part, but tough because he knew that his kid was torturing animals. Oh, so he did. He knew. Know. He saw. Yeah, he saw him with so pets he knew and things like he that. He had yeah. a little budding sociopath, oh, yeah. psychopath. He created him. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, not good. His classmates would state that he had a fascination with fire as well, which is another one of McDonald's triad. Check, check. A classmate's recollection of Jesperson was, quote, he could be bright when he wanted to. But then he would do something stupid. He'd be too kind or too mean, too generous or too stingy. You never saw the in-between. I always wondered if he was in control of his own brain, if he might have had brain damage. He sure acted like it. Yeah, so the high highs and the low lows. Yeah. So, not surprisingly, Jesperson never dated anyone in high school either, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. for lack of trying. Girls just didn't like him, and for good reason. I mean, good job girls listening to your lizard brain and not going for the pet killer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Eventually, though, he did graduate high school in 1973, was kind of at the bottom tier of his class, grade-wise, grade point average or whatever they had, if they had those back then. I don't know if things have changed. Anyway, he then turned to his dad and asked if he could go to college, but Les said no. He didn't think he could do it. (laughs) 
So he became Thanks, a truck driver. Dad. Thanks, Dad, for the vote of confidence. Yeah. So he went and became a truck driver. Okay. Somehow, even after all his misfortune with dating in high school, he was able to woo and marry a woman named Rose Huck in 1975 at age of 20. Okay. The couple were together for about 14 years, and they had three kids, two daughters and one son, and life continued fairly normally for the family until several years later, Rose began to suspect Jesperson was having some affairs. She had noted that strange women would often call the house asking for her husband. So she's like, what the heck? So yeah, tensions building in this marriage. And after 14 years, while Jesperson was on the road driving his truck, as you know, they go on long haul deals, Rose packed up their belongings and she and the children drove 200 miles away to live with her parents in Spokane. Okay, good. Good on you, Rose. Get the fuck out of there. Melissa, their oldest daughter at the time was 10 years old and would later go on to have some things to say about this. Oh. Jesperson continued to visit and spend time with his children whenever he was in town, and Rose officially then divorced him in 1990. Okay. So in this time of flux, Jesperson's having some trouble, and he's deciding, you know, I'm changing things here and there. I'm going to pursue one of my lifelong dreams. He wants to join the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Oh, shit. The Mounties? At age 35, he stood at 6 foot 7 inches, weighing approximately 240 pounds. At six foot seven? Six seven. Only 240. I mean, that's still, I mean, he's built. But he's still slender he's, at 240. Yeah, sure. I mean, Kirk is slender. He's more, I think he said 190. When you're that tall, it's difficult to put on muscle because of like, you know, you've got the, what is it, torque situation with your bones and ligaments and stuff. Yeah. Okay. So this guy is like a hulking, massive man. And he wants to go out for the, or try out, I get not try out, but like, what is the, he wants to join the school to become part of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. His dreams, however, were crushed when he suffered a serious injury while in the training program itself. Okay. I had read a story where he was trying to do one of those rope climbing things up to the ceiling. And because he was so large, the rope didn't hold his weight and the rope with the thing holding the rope came crashing down and he had a serious head injury. Which also is not good for people who, yeah. <laughs> who already have serious issues. Yeah. So I don't know whether or not that helped, you know, lead to the upcoming events, but that was something else that I came across while doing some research. Okay. So yeah, he had a serious injury, potentially including that head injury, and he was no longer fit to serve as an officer. And so he okay. had to resume his life of truck driving, which I might add here, mounted police, good thing because that poor horse carrying his weight and size <laughs> every day too. I know that he's into torturing animals, but like, that's... That's a different kind of torture. Poor Mr. Ed. And then I had a subcontext, or was he supposed to be the horse? Oh, well, <laughs> that's a very good point. Anyway. Yeah. So Dreams dashed, becomes a truck driver once more, or continues being a truck driver, I suppose. He then sought work as an interstate truck driver after relocating to Cheney, Washington? Or is it Cheney? No, not Cheney. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to keep mispronouncing things. I would like to call it Cheney from now on. One of my students, I love this. They're called spirochetes. They're bacteria that have a little spiral shape to them. Um, okay. The most known one is Borrelia burgdorferi that is responsible for Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. But one of my students who had only ever read them and never actually like heard the name pronounced before was like Spirochets. <laughs> I was like, I love that. I'm going to call spirochetes Spirochets from now on. Spirochets. Yeah. Yes, Cheney. 
Shanae Washington. <laughs> so I think we actually discussed this on another episode because I think Hannah and I had two different pronunciations. I say Cheney because we have Cheney Stadium, which is the home uh, of the Tacoma Rainiers uh, minor league baseball team. Got it. I'm totally down with going with Shanae. <laughs> okay. Cheney, Shanae, whatever you <laughs> like, listeners, let us know. Uh, he moved there. <laughs> So he would soon realize that this job actually was better suited to his needs after all. Okay. On January 23rd, 1990, near Portland, Oregon, on one of his truck jaunts, Jesperson introduced himself to a young woman named Tanya Bennett at a bar called the B&I Tavern and later invited her to the house that he was renting nearby. Okay. I guess this was like a common stop place for him along one of his routes or something. Okay. She at the bar was inebriated and trusting, and she went with him after his request to take her to dinner. Oh. There were some comments that she maybe was not, that she might have had some, I don't know how to say this anymore. Come on, brain. She might have had some mental disability where she wasn't quite with it to begin with. So being inebriated and also on her own um, as an adult and not knowing certain social cues. Okay. Maybe. Could have led to that. She was very gullible. She was overly trusting and and inebriated. So she was like, yeah, okay, sounds great. Let's go to dinner. Like, just, you know, happy go lucky. That's me. <laughs> food? Absolutely. I've been drinking. I want some food. I need a sponge. <laughs> so, yeah, she goes with him after his request to take her to dinner. But he tells her, you know, I don't quite have enough cash with me to take you out right now. Let me stop by the house and I will get some money. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah. At his house he brings her inside, coaxes her into having sex, and then while she's getting dressed after the deed he starts an argument and starts teasing her and she gets upset understandably. Yeah, like what the fuck, dude? Before she's even finished getting dressed, he begins beating her and then strangling her to death. Jesus. He then leaves her, gets dressed, creates an alibi by going back to the bar for some drinks, making sure to converse with others and letting them know who he is and everything. And then after the bar is closed, then returns back to the rental house to retrieve her body and personal belongings. He's not dumb. He's not that dumb. Yeah, unfortunately, at this point, it it just like... He knew at least to get an alibi, like, oh, well, or he just wanted to go back and have another drink. I don't know. But like, he's a sick fuck. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah. So he then leaves, leaves the rental, drives his truck along this seldom traveled road outside of town called the Old Scenic Highway. He pulls off off the road a little bit just to toss her body down an embankment and then drove away further to scatter the rest of her belongings. He drove out of Portland then and was back on the road the next day. A few days later, a student from Mount Hood Community College was riding her bike along the old scenic highway when she stopped for a breath and noticed a woman's body in the adjacent ditch. Oh, man. So the police are called, and they see that this victim had been strangled with a rope, which was still tied around her neck. Jesus. Her bra was pulled up, exposing her breasts, and her pants were pulled down, tangled around her ankles. She was badly bruised and cut, and there was evidence of sex, but they didn't definitively say if it was sexual assault. Okay. They were able to identify her as Tanya Bennett, who had been reported missing and last seen alive by her parents a week before. So detectives then scoured the bars and truck stops where her friends knew that she spent a lot of her time and asked around to see if anyone had seen anything suspicious or any sort of weird characters around Tanya. Yeah. Jesperson, who was already hundreds of miles away at this point, was riding his nasty, sick high on his first human victim. 
But then less than a month later, he was shocked to find that in the newspaper, someone else had claimed that they'd killed Tanya. Oh. In February 1990, a 58-year-old woman named Laverne Pavlinak said that she and her boyfriend committed the murder together. Laverne had read the news reports surrounding Tanya's death in the newspaper and used it to forcibly end the inescapable abusive relationship that she had with John. And so she had set up this meeting with investigators on the Bennett case and gave a false confession using the details that she'd read in a newspaper to give a detailed story of how her boyfriend had forced her to help him kidnap, rape, murder, and dispose of Tanya's body. Pavlinak and Snosovsky were both arrested on March 5th, 1990, and then were convicted of murder 11 months later on February 8th of 1991. Oh, so they actually got convicted. Yeah, so because of this. So to avoid the possibility of facing any death penalty, her boyfriend, Sosnovsky, pleaded no contest, basically. Oh. He's like, well, I'd rather just go away for this than to actually be killed for it, I guess. Yeah, scary, but... Yeah. Pavlinak was sentenced to no less than 10 years for her part in the murder, which was more than she'd anticipated. So... She probably thought she could plea out or something. Mm-hmm. Pavlinak soon, after realizing all of this admitted to making up the entire story, but her claims were ignored. It's kind of hard to put it all back in the box once you open it up. It's hard to unring that bell. Yeah. But to Jesperson, this was really good news because it meant that he got away with it and that made him feel invulnerable. Oh. Hmm. Wow. I can't be touched. Fuck. Somehow, though, it wasn't quite sitting right with him. So in the weeks following Tanya Bennett's murder, as all the attention was going to this other weird couple, Jesperson wrote a confession on the bathroom wall of a truck stop and signed it with a smiley face. Okay. I, I So I have heard of this guy before. No one, though, really reads truck stop bathroom graffiti, right? So he then wrote letters to media outlets and police departments confessing to the murders because the one letter wasn't getting any attention. In smoking Joe's bar and restaurant. Yeah. In right. the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. He had a six page letter that he sent to the Oregonian in which he revealed the detail of the killing. Holy shit. Six pages? He signed each of the letters that he had sent out with a smiley face. So this led Phil Stanford, the journalist that was working on this story for the Oregonian, basically nicknaming the murderer the happy face killer. Okay. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, I, the whole idea of like giving, I, they're catchy, they make headlines, but it's just, it's giving infamy to really nasty people and it's just not. It's really just for the use of the press. Yep, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Detectives in Portland re- theorized that some unknown friend of Sosnovsky might have written the graffiti and sent in the letters in an effort to prove John's innocent. Okay. Uh, innocence. <laughs> but the author <laughs> was untraceable. Oh my god, I have to stop drinking. (laughs) Now keep drinking, this is great. (laughs) Oh man, I'm like trying to read and also enunciate things. It's hard. (laughs) Late at night on April 12th, 1990, in a shopping center parking lot near Mount Shasta in California, next to the I-5 corridor, Don Richard Slagle, age 21 at the time, had been sitting on the curb, just kind of clearing her mind with her two-month-old son, Brandon. She'd gotten into this heated argument with her husband and had left with the baby to just cool off and get out of that situation. And she noticed uh, Jesperson, this large, somewhat handsome man, given her eyes, sitting in his truck. 
and he comes out and greets her. And the two just strike up this conversation, and in their small talk, he seemed reassuring that he was also going through some marriage woes, and he knew the feelings that she had. He told her about his life, where he worked, where he was from, finding common ground with her. So he used all this to his advantage to get her to lower her guard and put her more at ease. And then, in an act of kindness, seemingly, he invited her on a scenic drive in the nice cool evening to escape further from the argument that she had waiting for her at home. With she obliged. Baby? Yeah. So she goes with him. However, she noticed a remarkable change in his face and demeanor when they got to a secluded spot and he pulled over. And there he tried to coerce her into sex with her infant son in the back seat. Jesus Christ. I mean, she's kind of like, I don't know where I am. Yeah. Kind of situation. Like, that's not, not good, but she is coerced. She starts, I don't know, partaking in oral sex for him. Okay. But then she kind of stops and he demands that she finishes the job mm -hmm. and she disagrees and Jesperson gets really angry. So at this point, he attempted to strangle her and break her neck, but she was able to avoid this and fight his grip because they're in the tight confines of the truck. Okay. And so kind of at whatever angle, she's able to kind of evade his grasp. Okay. This goes on for apparently like hours. And I don't know mm. if it's actually hours or if it's like, it feels like hours to her, but the, the recount from her in this article of kind of like an I Survive story is that yeah. she escapes. And as she's struggling, her baby falls from the back seat into the floorboard of the back seat and begins screaming. Yeah. And so she's screaming, begging for their lives. And amongst the sounds of both of their wails, Jesperson relented, and Don would later recall her absolute surprise when he just stopped and started the truck engine and began driving back into town to drop her off. Okay. They both survived. What would you even do? Like, grab your baby and, like, try to run? They're in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And he's in a truck. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. oh my god. Yeah. Okay, but they both survived, so that's good. She is dropped off, and she goes immediately to the police station and files a police report using yeah. whatever details that he had given her in that small talk. She kind of, like, logged it away. Okay. And so literally hours after she files this police report, Jesperson was tracked down, found, and arrested at gunpoint in Corning, California. Good. Turns out they that all those details led them straight to him. So he was questioned at the scene, and then they uncuff him and tell him that he needs to go speak with a detective in the Shasta Police Department, which, okay. which he did. He drove up there and he talked to them. He was interrogated, and he claimed that her neck injury from getting twisted was simply an accident from the cramped space of the car during their activities. Oh, Jesus. And he also led them to other evidence that supported his version of the events, taking them back to that parking lot and showing an empty liquor bottle near the parking lot that he claimed was Dawn's, and how she had approached him as a desperate mother and sex worker looking for work. Oh. He said, she said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His version apparently was more believable than hers, and he was released. Ugh. He did get charges filed against him for sexual assault, though, and when he failed to appear in court, a felony warrant was issued. Okay. He was later arrested in Iowa at a truck way station. At that station, they ran his name and found the outstanding warrant from California and arrested him there. But somehow, and I don't even know how, but Shasta County's warrant didn't carry that much weight, so the charge was reduced to a misdemeanor. And then they found out that like a misdemeanor isn't actually worth the cost of extradition charges across state lines. Okay. So they just dropped the charges fully. Jesus. 
Lazy asses. I know, right? And so Jesperson now is feeling lucky again. And he's like, cool. A boost to his confidence. Yeah. So he's just going to lay low and ride that out. And it was then another year before he felt his sick needs and urges rising again. Mm. On August 30th, 1992, a woman's body was found decomposing beneath the brush in the desert near Blythe, California. The autopsy report showed that her cause of death was strangulation. She had blonde hair, which was roughly shoulder length and wavy. Her fingernails and toenails were painted with a gold glittery polish. There were two small dots tattooed on her right thumb between the nail and the first knuckle, which I have a friend who has that tattoo. I don't know what it means, but I've seen it before. And some of her teeth were also missing, but dental records have not been successful in identifying her. Okay. Jesperson would later claim that the victim's name was Claudia, but this still remains unidentified to this day. Oh. She still doesn't have a real name. That's so sad. Yeah. A month later, behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe near Turlock, California, the body of Cynthia Lynn Rose was discovered. He claims that she was a sex worker who entered his truck at a truck stop while he was sleeping, and she woke him up bothering him for sex. So he strangled her and dumped her body. Jesus. His fourth victim was another sex worker, Lori Ann Petland of Salem, Oregon. Her body was found in November of 1992, and according to Jesperson, she had tried to double the fee that she charged for the sex that he had already engaged in with her. And then, without him actually paying, she threatened to call the police on him. And in his anger, he strangled her. Then on June 3rd, 1993, a trucker had pulled off on a turnout along State Route 152 near Gilroy and Santanella. There's kind of like a little route in between there. Okay. And he had stopped literally just on like a little road turnout. He just stopped there really quick to go pee. And as he's getting ready to, down in the ravine below the berm, he noticed a woman's decomposing body at the bottom of the embankment. Oh, Jesperson would later go on in a letter that he met the woman at a truck stop off of I-5, bought her lunch, gave her a lift, had sex with her, and then killed her. He said he drove for several hours with the body strapped into the passenger seat in his cab before dumping her. Seriously? Yeah. Trying to get carpool? The fuck, dude? I mean, I don't think truck drivers get carpool, especially not on, like, little lane highways anyways, but, like, it's just obscene to me that nobody noticed. A dead body. Yeah. I mean- it's not like she's bloody. She was she was strangled, but yeah. I sure, mean, but still. Yeah, I'm going to look twice into every truck driver's cab oh my that I pass God. on the highway now. Well, so I pass a ton of trucks on my like commute to and from work, and now I'm going to be like, what do you have? Totally <laughs> sus over there. What, what do you got in your cab, dude? Yeah. I actually have a family member that I no longer talk to because we're not on good terms, really, but he referred to women who frequent truck stops as a source of income um, as lot lizards and they're just really looked down upon like not upstanding members of society or anything and it's just it's really sad that is sad yeah total separate side note there are a ton of truck stops that have like really good food so i'm just gonna throw that out there They have the cleanest bathrooms. They do. Like, I would go to a truck stop bathroom way before I would go to, like, an AMPM bathroom. Oh, fuck yeah. I mean, that's part of, like, what they do. But there's one in Tacoma. It's a big one. But I guess there's some, like, really, really, really big truck stops. But this one had the best chicken tenders. Ooh. I love chicken tenders. (laughs) 
I wish I could still have chicken tenders. That was like one of my favorite lunch spots to go. But it was. It was very clean. It was, there Mm -hmm. was a ton of like extra stuff. Like you could almost go like Christmas shopping at the truck stop. Yeah. There's like a lot of stuff there. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so, yeah, he had driven for several hours with her strapped into the passenger seat before dumping her body there. Her autopsy had shown that she had several missing teeth and bad track marks in her arms, which led authorities to assume that she was a drug user and had likely just overdosed. But, like, how do you overdose in the bottom of a ravine off of a highway while missing your teeth i mean no the teeth missing i mean because of like if you're a drug abuser you're probably not worried about brushing your teeth or taking care of your hygiene maybe sure but I'm, if they're like broken versus just missing them. no they were missing it wasn't oh, like oh okay yeah they they didn't notice that there were signs because she was so badly decomposed they couldn't tell that there were signs of strangulation or anything okay and so they this was basically they just closed this case that she had overdosed To this day, she still remains unidentified. So more than a year later, in September of 1994, another unidentified woman was found by road workers in Crestview, Florida. Her body was found dumped in a wooded area off of I-10, and she had signs of strangulation and severe bruising. Found near her body or on her body, it wasn't clear on this, but there were three tie wraps that Jesperson had used in the strangulation. Oh, In one of his many letters, signed with the signature smiley face, Jesperson would later state that her name was Suzanne or Suzette, and that she had met him at a truck stop in Tampa and had been looking for a way to get to Reno. And he told her that because he was a cross-country truck driver that he could get her there. But then he raped and strangled her and dumped her body before they even left state lines. Jesus. Still in 1994, the Portland Oregonian received a letter in the same awkward handwriting and misspelled words as they'd been receiving for years prior, signed with the same creepy smiling face. This time, though, the author claimed a total of six victims, including five more in Oregon and California. Quote, I feel bad, but I will not turn myself in. I am not stupid. The letter continued, in a lot of opinions, I should be killed and I feel I deserve it. My responsibility is mine, and God will be my judge when I die. I'm telling you this because I will be responsible for the crimes and no one else. It all started when I wondered what it would be like to kill someone, and I found out. What a nightmare it has been. The letter then closed on an ominous note. Look over your shoulder. I'm closer than you think. Ew. With the smiley face. Gross. Yeah. In January 1995, Jesperson agreed to take a young woman, Angela Surprise, from Spokane, Washington, all the way to Indiana in his truck. She had been wanting to be able to get a ride to go see her boyfriend. Um, About a week into the trip, while in Wyoming, Angela is just getting really impatient with him and how slow the truck route is and how often he stops to sleep and nap and and everything. Mm -hmm. Apparently, she's nagging him too much to hurry up because she wanted to see her boyfriend and probably get out of this stinking truck that smells like death. (laughs) An ass. Yeah. Jesperson responded by raping and strangling her. Oh, Jesus Christ. And this part is especially gruesome. He then strapped her body with nylon cord to the undercarriage of his truck and dragged her face face down for about 10 miles to grind off her face and fingerprints. Jesus Christ. Her body was not found until several months later. Two months after murdering Angela, Jesperson decided then that his longtime girlfriend, Julie Ann Winningham, apparently a gold digger that he considered her to be okay, for a truck driver. I'm not. like He's not an investment banker. I don't know, dude. <laughs> I don't know. Long haul truck drivers 
can make decent money. Yeah, but I mean, he's also got three kids. If he's paying child support. Oh, yeah. I assumed he was, but maybe he was not. Anyways, he's mad at her. He thinks that she's only after him for his money and decides that she's the next one to go. Oh, and Jesus. he feels untouchable. He's gotten away with so much so far. I mean, what are we up to now? Eight? This is seven. So this is this one's going to be the eighth. Okay. On March 10th, 1995 in Washougal. Washougal? Washougal. All right. Cool. Mm-hmm. I did it. <laughs> Washougal, Washington. Shanae. Shanae. <laughs> Jesperson strangled his girlfriend, Julie. Aww. Her body was discovered days later alongside the road and police investigating her death, of course, turned to the longtime partner and find him and question him. Jesperson refused to talk to them at first and was sent home, but quickly panic sets in. So over the next few days, he'd attempted suicide twice, stating, quote, As I saw it, I was hoping they would catch me. I took 48 sleeping pills last night and I woke up well rested, end quote. And I'm like, mm. I don't know if I believe this, but also you are a large man and like, maybe you have a little bit more resistant, but that's a lot of pills. Uh-uh. I feel like that is a bunch of bullshit, mm-hmm. honestly. I feel like he was just saying some shit. Yeah. I don't yeah. think he did. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. All right. So he ultimately turned himself in, though, because he's like, we got to end this. <laughs> he turns himself in on March 30th, oh. hoping that that would actually result in leniency during sentencing. Just for Julie's case, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, so a few days before his arrest, as he's, like, pacing around in his house and nervous and trying to figure out what to do, he wrote a letter to his brother. Doesn't say which brother. A brother. One of his two brothers. Bruce or Brad. I don't know which one. In it, he confessed to having killed eight people over the course of these five years. Okay. And when he's arrested, police go to his house and they find this letter and they start reopening cases that are associated with the timeline that he's laid out. So while he's in custody for Julie's murder, he also confesses to Tanya Bennett's murder in Portland and Laurie Ann Petlin's murder in Salem. Police are at first skeptical of his recounting of Bennett's murder because didn't they have the couple already who had confessed to it behind bars? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, they're already serving time. We did this. But he gives them information leading them to Bennett's missing purse, which they'd never actually been able to find. And he knew okay. exactly where it was. Okay. So they were like, oh, maybe they don't have the right people. Ruh-roh. Uh, yeah. And then they match the other details to Lori Ann Petlin's murder, and they they find out, you know, that all of that matches too. And so on November 3rd of 1995, he pled guilty to three Oregon slings and subsequently was sentenced to three terms of life imprisonment. Okay. Media reports claim that Jesperson wept with joy when Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnowski are released from prison on November 27th. He didn't want them to have the credit for it. But, like, he's elated that they're like, okay, cool. They, yeah, they're out. They didn't have to, their lives weren't ruined because of me. Which leads me to think, like, again, this, like, weird Jekyll and Hyde thing. Sure. I think it was more, not necessarily he was, like, happy for them. He just didn't want them to have the credit or the notoriety associated with something he had done. That, too. Yes. And I agree, because while in prison, Jesperson began making comments to other inmates and writing letters, and this sparked curiosity. 
So investigators are using the letter that he'd written to his brother to check the handwriting on the happy face killer's letter to the Oregonian from the years prior and found out that this weird ass like sloppy handwriting actually matched. And not only the handwriting matched, but the crimes themselves matched, right? Okay. Because they're like, hey, wait a minute. Wasn't this published from the Oregonian about the happy face killer? These are the things that he's outlined to his brother. And they're like connecting the dots. Okay. With one of the California victims, the happy faced killer had written in that he had used duct tape to bind her hands and feet, um, which was a fact that had never actually been released to the public in any of the articles. Okay. they've got to hold something back, you know. And investigators found duct tape near her body, and this matched something that he had written in specifically about that victim to the Oregonian from prison. So stuff is matching up. Stuff's matching up, and they're like, oh, there's more going on here. So this then led police agencies in several states across the country to start to reopen and relook at lots of old cases, mm-hmm. many of which were actually found to be possible victims of Jesperson. Okay. So at, at one point, he had claimed to have as many as 160 victims. What? Which, again, grain of salt. He's notorious for, you know, the 220 volts thing, right? Like, so this exaggeration. Is like- Five years, so he's claiming... He had said between two and three murders per week, which also doesn't add up because there's 52 weeks in a year. Yeah. So no, but like also potentially because he's on a truck and picking up people left and right. I don't know. And it's like the, it's the 90s. So hitchhikers. I don't know. Yeah. Not great. (laughs) No, it's still 160 though. That's, that's a lot. And he doesn't have details for all of them. I think he, again, just wants the notoriety. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. He's like, I am this creep, right? I am and this- every time that he confesses to something, it opens a case and then it gives him an opportunity to travel to that state okay. because then they, they want him to stand charges there. And so he gets to have, you know, time out. Mm-hmm. However, only the eight women that were killed in California, Florida, Nebraska, Oregon, and Washington were ever confirmed. Okay. Or I guess Wyoming, not Nebraska. She was killed in Wyoming, and then her body was found in Nebraska. Okay. He's serving three consecutive life sentences at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. Okay. So he's not ever getting out. In September 2009, he was indicted for murder in Riverside County, California, and then was, like, for example, extradited there to go and face those charges. So he gets to go on these little field trips every time that he writes a story that he has real facts to, which is fucked up. Yeah, why are you allowing him that luxury? Mm -hmm. Because he's getting out of prison to be transported to this other state, even though he's going down to, like, face these other charges. He's still getting, like, a goddamn field trip out of it. Yep. Jesus. So, that's where he remains. Three life sentences consecutive. No, not concurrently. Consecutively, which is good. No one's going to live for three life sentences. I hope Uh, not. (laughs) Jesus. In a first-person account for the BBC, My Evil Dad, Life as a Serial Killer's Daughter, his oldest daughter, Melissa Moore, the one that I had mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. she actually also wrote a book that I did not read for this because I didn't have time to, but yeah, she said she has lots of really interesting statements about her upbringing and things that she noticed but didn't think anything really about other than like, wow, that sucks kind of thing until later on. But Melissa said that she realized something was wrong with her father when she was a teenager. Although she insists that she and her siblings were never molested or abused, she said that she felt uncomfortable with her father because she had, quote, a feeling that something was building and seething beneath the surface. 
Okay. So in one conversation, Jesperson had told Melissa that he had something to confess. And when she was like, yeah, okay, he immediately changed his mind saying, quote, I can't tell you, sweetie. If I tell you, you'll tell the police. I'm not what you think I am. Uh, yeah. And that poor girl and family that they had to live through all of the torture and torment of knowing that. Yeah. Can you just imagine feeling like you ain't right? Yeah. But then finding out that like, no shit. No, you really aren't right. (laughs) Yeah. Holy fuck. Yep. So that's, that's what I've got. It's a short one this week. I do have astrology. I didn't go super deep into his natal chart, but- because he was born on April 6th, Keith Hunter Jesperson is an Aries. Mm-hmm. And while Aries may have, I mean, like all of the different signs have great qualities that can be strengths, absolutely. But also like them all, they can be prone to a more dark side when they let certain aspects get the better of them. Oh, yes. Aries specifically can behave recklessly and care more about their personal outcomes than those around them. Okay. Behaving selfishly as well. Mm-hmm. They are also capable of being extremely impatient uh, when things aren't moving at the pace that they want them to. <laughs> I've seen your laugh. Hi, Mom. <laughs> If things aren't going their way, they can be intolerant and really short-tempered. They often need validation and can be known as attention seekers. Seekers, not sinkers. Um, (laughs) Stinkers. I would say that all of these pretty much match Jesperson, especially the attention-seeking bit because he Mm -hmm. continued to write from prison, right, about all of these women that he had murdered and adopted the Oregon newspaper's nickname for him as his own sign-off, Happy Face. He wanted that. And it's interesting, too, because he was, you know, across state lines and stuff, but he always went back to the Oregonian newspaper to send this. So he felt like... he already had a connection there and he knew that they would, you know... They would continue with their plight to make him famous. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Piece of shiitake mushrooms. (laughs) Well, cool, uh, but not cool. Not cool. What a fucking douchebag. Yep. Agree. Mm, no likey. And I can post the links too for these, the Jane Does that are still unidentified for people who might have information. If you hear this and you think you know, you know, somebody around that time that had gone missing or have anything to add, then yeah, find absolutely. those links on our website probably. If Hannah puts them up, maybe. Maybe I'll tweet them. Who knows? <laughs> Someday if we will master social media. It might not be today. No, not today. Damn, that throws me, though, because there are so many, like, possibilities, right? Mm Because he didn't even remember some of the ladies' names. He's just speculating on some of their names and stuff, so there's... It also goes to show how much he thought of them, though. And that Mm -hmm. was something, too, that he he remembers from his father, was that his father looked down on women. Sure. And just didn't think much of them. Yeah, they're not equals or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And there was mention in one article, and I couldn't find out for sure, I thought maybe your sleuthing would help, but that his mother had also died right around the time that he started killing. That would make sense. Yeah. But I was like, I don't know if I want to include this because I can't validate it anywhere, and I don't know where to find this info. It's weird, too, when you're researching and you're like, like, these 10 websites and this Mm -hmm. news article say this one thing, but then these 10. I had tabs open all the way across the thing. I was like, ah, I don't know which one to believe anymore. Because there's so many of his own exaggerations and stuff, too. I think he thinks a lot of himself, so. Oh, yeah. 
Mm. And the timelines from certain articles too don't match up. So I'm like, I'm just gonna I'm gonna pick which ones I think are most believable sure. that like corroborate with other articles rather than the ones that are like, this makes sense. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna give him a ten out of ten douchebag rating yes that's what i'm gonna give him i do have a little bit more astrology for this upcoming week so this episode is going to air on april 18th and so just one one day past our easter so happy easter listeners happy easter so on monday april 18th when this episode airs venus and pisces is going to be sextile with uranus in taurus And again, that sextile is just that 60 degree aspect. And this is going to be kind of a fun day, I think, because it kind of gives off like this energy where you might get a windfall of sorts. So I'm going to predict let's all buy lotto tickets. Oh, shit. (laughs) Right? Okay. Because this unexpected windfall is supposed to like help us with our future endeavors. And so truly my future endeavor is just like better podcasting stuff, like better microphone, better audio editing stuff. So, and I need money to do that. So (laughs) I'm going to buy a ticket, a lotto ticket on Monday and we'll see what happens. All right. I put it in my calendar. Okay. And then on Tuesday, April 19th, the sun enters Taurus. So we are coming out of Aries season. We are entering Taurus season. So for the next four weeks, we are going to be more patient, (sighs) a little bit more productive, and a little bit more reliable, but pretty darn stubborn. So, Uh uh-oh. And then on Sunday, April 24th, Mercury in Taurus is going to be square, and that's a big want-want, with Saturn in Aquarius, and this is going to be a very frustrating day. So it's a Sunday, stay home, just try to avoid the day, I guess. But if you are out and about or dealing with friends, family, loved ones, acquaintances, or whatever, pay attention to the details. This is going to save you from having more issues in the future. But it would be better if you just stayed home. (laughs) Will do. Avoid shit. Take naps. It will be great. (gasps) Ooh. My naps are usually like two or three hours long. Sorry, what day is this? Putting that one in my calendar too. That's the Sunday, the 24th. Just like avoid shit. Nap time. Oh no. I'm having family visit. My uncle is coming in on the 22nd and my cousins are coming that week. Shit. Oh no. I will lock myself in my room and have a nap. <laughs> Take a nap or just like have some drinks or just make it a like a relaxing day, not a big decision making type day. Just let the biggest decision you make be what food you serve for your family. What food that they are going to get for me, you mean? Yeah. I'm going to be serving them. I'm already hosting them. You're like, raw fish, here you go. <laughs> Yeah, really. I think actually they would probably like that. They haven't had sushi in a while, I don't think. Oh, I mean, my I uncle lives sushi. in Arizona and it's kind of far from the ocean. On Saturday, April 23rd, it is the National Take a Chance Day. Oh. So if you want to take a chance and contact us, we will respond if we get messages. Any. Any at all. 
really anything. We can talk about your cats. We can talk about astrology. We can talk about other pets. Your favorite mispronunciation of a city. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) Any of our other fun mispronounced words. If you do want to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, on Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com and then check out our website, www.truecrimetrine.com. Woo! Yay! Just keep on checking. <laughs> I just saw this thing about hitchhiking in a hearse. Oh, God. In a hearse? Like you're in the hearse or? It was like the, there's a hitchhiker and they were trying to get a ride and a hearse stopped. Oh, and they're like, uh, no. Nah, I'll wait for the next one. <laughs> you keep you keep going. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Okay. Stephen Wright. I was hitchhiking the other day and a hearse stopped. I said, no, thanks. I'm not going that far. <laughs> it's kind of fucked. <laughs> well, I mean, which direction were you going? Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. Well, Shanae for today. Shanae Namaste. <laughs> this was take two. <laughs> <laughs> Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.